said, First uh, Peter in chapter 1 this morning. We began this book last week, and I gave you kind of a background. We talked about Peter, the author. Uh, Peter is a well-known character because I think many of us would relate to him. Um, but I think at the same time, what was noticed in the book of Acts about Peter, James, and John is that uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes looked at them and they said, you know what? These guys are uneducated. <laughs> what they noticed about them is their, um, their normalness. Their, uh, uh, they were average. They were average Joes. They weren't scholars, and yet they weren't uh, completely ignorant. There was nothing wrong with them. It's just that they were, it, to, the, to the religious elite, they looked to be uneducated. And, but what they noticed about these men uh, these are their enemies, remember. These are the people that didn't like Peter, James, and John, the people that were trying to shut the testimony of Jesus up completely. What they noticed about him <laughs> was that they had been with Jesus. The one distinguishing character attribute that they had that set them apart from everyone else is that they noticed that these men had obviously spent time with Jesus. And if there's one thing that I desire for myself and for you all is that the world would look at you and see all of your weaknesses, and you'd be okay with that, but that they would recognize, if nothing else, about your Christianity is that you've spent time with Jesus. Because that is what makes the difference between a religious person and a, and a Christ follower, someone that knows Jesus intimately and has been impacted by the reality of his presence in their life. And so this letter is written by Peter, he says, an apostle. He doesn't call himself the apostle. He doesn't distinguish himself. He just says, I'm an apostle. I've been chosen by God. I've been sent by him. And if you want to know my testimony, here's all my weaknesses. Here's all my failures. He knows that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and that are, there are people around that actually know who he is, who he used to be, everything embarrassing that he doesn't want to tell. He knows that they're around and they're telling the story. So he's just introducing himself simply as an apostle of Jesus. And he writes this letter to the believers who have been scattered. And so in verse 1 and 2, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. His identity is in who sent him. He doesn't say Peter, son of. He says Peter, someone who has been sent by Jesus. Now, he doesn't call himself Simon. His name, really his given name, is Simon. But Jesus said to him, I call you Peter. And it's not the Peter that is the foundation of the church, like many would subscribe to as the Pope, the first uh, Pope is not Peter, because Peter, in all reality, his name is Peter, which means little stone. And if you'll remember, when Jesus gave him that name, he says, I call you little stone because on the rock of your confession, not on the rock of your ability to save yourself, but on the rock of your confession, I will build my church. What was his confession? That you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So that was the rock. That, that's the foundation of his faith. And so as Peter simply does what God gives him to do, he writes to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, our modern-day Turkey. So I have the map for you in the background, which is probably difficult to read because it's a low-resolution photo that I screen-captured on my cell phone. 
But that being said, there's a map there for you, and Achaia, on the middle of the screen, right under the words born for, is modern-day Greece. And then across that little sea there is actually Asia Minor, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Bithynia. He's not writing to a church. He's writing to a region. And more than that, he's writing to what we would modern-day call an entire country. But is he writing to everyone who's in that country? No, he's writing to the believers that have been scattered there. So if you have a bag of seed, it's sitting in front of you, and you pick it up, it's about 50 pounds, right? Usually, sometimes more. But this seed doesn't seem to be that big of an impact because it's spread over 10 acres, if you will. So God took his people by his wisdom and scattered them among a Gentile region of a bunch of little cities and nations and areas. And so God has scattered them there. And they are in a crisis of faith, if you will. Because how many of us struggle with, God says he's good and he says he saved me, but why has he allowed me to still be in this spot where I'm uncomfortable? If God loves me, why won't he take me out of this? And you can fill in the blank. God loves me, I know that. The Bible tells me so. I sing the song. But what about my current situation? Because if he loves me, why would he allow me to be in this job or in this relationship or in this home that keeps falling apart or, you know, jobless? Why would he allow me to live in this country where I'm persecuted for my faith? Why would he allow me to be in this country where sin is exalted and righteousness is looked upon with scorn? Why would God allow that? Well, he scattered you and I, and he's bigger than our circumstances. And our hope is not where we live. Our hope is in the Son of God. And so in John chapter 3, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. So he says there, you've been scattered, verse 2, elect or chosen according to God's foreknowledge, God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, you're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and you've been chosen for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to look into what that means, I spent the bulk of last week's message talking about what we've been called for, which is obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So he says you've been called, and he mentions the Trinity here. Notice this. He says, God the Father chose you. God the Spirit is cleansing you and sanctifying you and setting you apart for His work. And then He says, God has called you for obedience to represent the blood of Jesus Christ, to sprinkle His blood, to purify the world around you. And so then He says to them with this monumental task and at the same time this calling that God's going to do, he's going to be, he who started a work, Philippians says, will also be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So it, although it's a work we've been called to, it's a work that he's going to do. I like that. I like when God calls me to do chores and then says, I'm going to do them through you. Because then it's not weighing upon me. But then he says this, grace to you and peace be multiplied. And some of your translations might say overflow. He's giving a blessing, a priestly blessing over the believers who read this book. He says, I desire grace to you and peace that would be multiplied from God to you. So 
verse 3, he goes on to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So he goes on after talking about what God has done in choosing you, what God has done in cleansing you and setting you apart for his holy work, and then talking about the fact that we have a ministry we've been given. We've been saved for good works is what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says. So in that case, it would be very easy for us as Midwesterners, as you will, to look at it and go, man, this is a big to-do list. But then he goes on not to talk about our responsibility. He goes on to talk about our God. He says, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who birthed him, the one who sent him, and the one who is birthing you. He's begotten us again to a living hope which makes me think of being born again, begotten again. If you read the Old Testament, you read the King James, it might say say, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so. And And it's always men and women having children that they begot. But then in the New Testament, we have this genealogy that kind of stops with Jesus. And then Peter writes here in this letter, he's begotten you. So we're part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. No longer a part of the genealogy that says so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, but what it always says in the Old Testament is so-and-so begot so-and-so, and then they died. So-and-so begot so-and-so, and then they died. That's the bad news. We all die. So why do our hearts long for this life that doesn't end? Were we made for eternity? Well, the reality is, is that Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 3, said that no man who has been born of the flesh only will see the kingdom of God. If a man will see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. And then Nicodemus asked the question that you and I would say as show-me staters. We'd say, uh, show me. What does that mean? He says, how can I go back into my mom? Here I am, a full-grown man. I can't go back into my mom and be born. What about someone who's Mom has already died. How do I, you know, and and he asks the the little kid question, if you will. And I think sometimes we look at Nicodemus and go, well, that's a dumb question. Okay, but he was trying to understand. He was asking, there are no dumb questions. If you ask the question, then you can get an answer and get corrected, even if it seems foolish. Any question you ask, by the way, if you've ever taken classes, everyone else doesn't, well, I can't make that statement. I was going to say, people don't think you're dumb. They probably do. I used to be the guy in class going, I can't believe they're asking that question again. Now, did I know the answer to it? No. So who's the foolish one? The one gaining knowledge or the one remaining ignorant? I was going to say it was me. So he's asking a question that no one else was asking. What do you mean by this? And Jesus said to him, unless you've been born again, So in John chapter 3, lest I leave that unanswered, verse 3, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And moms are like, I hope not. And then in verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the, the Holy Spirit has to be involved in this new birth. And, and so he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So everyone who is born of the Spirit is led by the Spirit, is what he's implying. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? The Old Testament taught about the Holy Spirit and, and the new life that he would give. And so this new life that's been begun in the Spirit, not of water, which when your water breaks, you have a child, but of the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes in alongside a person and convicts them. The Spirit of God convicts them of sin and righteousness and of judgment and opens our eyes with the ability to see the kingdom of God for what it is, to see our sin for what it is, so that we can repent and receive Christ as the only one who can save us because our good works can never get us there. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches that any works that we do are not good, that no man seeks God. And so in that, we must be born of the Spirit, which is something we can't do on our own. But we've been born again to a living hope. So the struggle, their struggle and ours, is that God says this about me. You've been born again. I've begotten you again to a living hope. But my circumstances imply that God has forgotten me. Think about this. Maybe you can't. But think about this from their perspective. They've received Christ. They're following him. They're obeying the commandments, no longer because they have to, but they're just grateful, so they want to. And then God allows persecution. At the time that this letter is written, Nero is the Caesar over all of Rome, and they're under his province. They're under his kingdom. And Caesar is wholesale killing Christians for funsies. It's, you're supposed to worship Caesar. And, and at the same time, the things that you call good, the world is calling evil. And what, the things that you call evil, the world is calling good. And so to live and to walk in those precepts that God's given, the world says, uh, what are you doing? You're holding back society from getting better. This hope that you have, this faith that you have, it's offensive to the world around you. And this, this should parallel to you. This is not our home, folks. Now, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. The reality is God's promised us joy that goes beyond circumstances. He's promised us hope if we will endure. We have to be patient. We have to trust that what God's Word says is, in fact, going to be fulfilled, even if it's not in our lifetime. So the question that they're struggling with in this faith crisis they're having, God says he loves me, but he's allowed all these things to happen. He's allowed people to be slave owners of me. He's allowed me to to be sent from my homeland. I mean, if you look at this map, Jerusalem is far from where they're at. But what the word of God says is that our salvation is secure in Jesus. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
Now, what I want to point out is that we use the word hope incorrectly. I hope I wake up on time for work. I hope that I get a raise. That's wishing. There's a difference between wishing for things and hoping in things. So what God tells us in this passage is that our hope is an anchor, not wishful thinking. Hope is something that we tie ourselves to. It's an anchor for our souls. We're going to read that in Hebrews chapter 6. Just two books to the left. Go back to James and then Hebrews 6. In verse 19, it says, This hope that we have as an this hope we have as an anchor of our souls, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. But the context of that verse is that in verse 13 he says, When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater. If God makes a promise to you, he doesn't say, I swear by my creation. He makes a promise. I'm going to, he's the guarantee of that promise. When you write a check, the check says, because of your signature on it, that that amount of money will be transferred to the person that it says on the line, pay to the order of. If there's no signature, there's no guarantee. So when God writes a check to you and I, he swears by himself. He signs his own signature to it. When God had made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So Abraham got a promise from God. God guaranteed it by his own character, his own self. But then, did he get it right away? No. He said, I'm going to give you this land. Abraham never received and kept the land in his own lifetime. It's actually given to his descendants. Abraham was promised to have descendants. Was he given a son when he thought he should be given a son? No. He was given a son when God fulfilled the promise in his timing. So back to here, God has given us a living hope, which is an anchor for our souls, and in the meantime, if things don't look like they're going to pan out, the reality is God's promise is still sure. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8, to a very famous passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I know that many of you could quote this. You probably have it hanging in your home somewhere. But what Paul writes here is something that we need to know and believe and walk in even when it doesn't feel like it or seem like it. Romans 8:28 says and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called remember he said God has called you so you're the called he's saying he's called them according to his purpose for those whom he knew ahead of time, or he foreknew, he also chose or predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. Do you know that that's God's will for your life, Christians? That God has predestined and chosen you to be conformed into the likeness of his Son. 
as you grow in your relationship with Jesus, God's desire for you through all the things he allows in your life is to make you more like Jesus. That's the goal. That's God's goal for you. Does your goal for you line up with God's goal for you? If not, you're going to be really frustrated. But if so, you're going to have joy because people are going to look at you and sometimes they're going to say it in your hearing, wow, you're not what you once were. The greatest compliment I received was the other night when my mom said that about me. And it's been 12, 13, I I can't remember how many years now. But there was a time where when I started following Jesus, they were not impressed with it. And now my mom's like, wow, he's... He is so much less sarcastic and harsh than he used to be. Hey, I'll take it. It's true. So if you think I'm sarcastic and harsh now, you should have seen me before. In some ways, I'm glad you guys didn't know me before. And in some ways, I wish you did, because it is a stark contrast. So that said, what about you? Can people see you being transformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus? If not, you need to repent. You're, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. You're not allowing God to transform your character. You should become more loving. You should have more joy over time. So be patient. God's patient, right? But, but let him complete that work that he started in you. If your desire is to be saved and just get to heaven by the skin of your teeth and you really don't want to change, that's not the Spirit of God in you. That's your flesh saying, I don't like change but you're going to be miserable because God's going to still try to do the change and you're going to be fighting against him and you cannot stop him. So that said, he says to be conformed to the images of his son that he, his son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he chose, he predestined. These he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And the word glorified or justified means to be made righteous. So in Christ, you will be made righteous. God's going to do it. So back here, excuse me, I guess I didn't finish that passage. Sorry, got all excited about being conformed into the image of Jesus. And I forgot that I was going to finish up reading that passage by verse 39. I did that on purpose. (laughs) All right. So, where was I? Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation. Remember these people have been taken from their homeland. They're in unlikely circumstances. They're uncomfortable. They've been taken away from where they're comfortable. And so he says... um, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, uh, the lack of food, famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, any of those things happen to you, 
It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. His love is still right there with you. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And if you look at the early Christians, they were persecuted to death. Look at the apostles. Many of them were crucified. Peter was crucified upside down. He's writing this knowing that this applies to him too. And so yet in all these things, he says this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the same Peter that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, took up a sword and tried to defend Jesus and save him from the people that were arresting him. He had already tried to live by the sword the moments after Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be given over to the hands of sinners. And Jesus said, no, not so, Lord. And then he was. And then Peter tried to stop what God said he was going to do. But then he says here, we're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors because people that go in and conquer the Roman legions that were going in and conquering lands and taking them over and growing this big empire... They weren't more than conquerors. Their defeat and their victories depended on how hard they worked. But as believers in Jesus Christ, our victory has already been sealed. It was sealed in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So the worst that man can do to us is take our life, but that has already been dealt with because our life is hidden in Christ. And just as he raised from the dead so will we. And so uh, they can take my family as much as I would hate for that to happen. They can take my home. They can take the church. They can take my job. But they can't take my soul because it's already procured by Jesus. So circumstances don't mean no zilch. So if you can't take vacation this summer, guess what? God still loves you. If, if your pipes freeze this winter, God still loves you. If you have to drain your savings to fix something that you didn't see coming, God still loves you. If your boss fires you and that's your only income, God still loves you. What's the thing that is in your life that is happening to you right now that you're questioning whether or not God loves you because of it? What is it? He loves you. Ain't no thing. And it's not because he doesn't care about what you care about. As we move on, we'll see why he allows trials. Verse 5. He says this. This inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith. For salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We're kept by God through faith in our circumstances, our jobs, our stuff, our comfort zone. No, we're kept by faith, by the power of God through faith in Him for the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. There are some things in your life that may not be completely resolved until heaven. That's the reality. So, It's for future glory. But he says also that he's preparing us. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, because your salvation's already been procured. You can greatly rejoice in what Jesus has accomplished. 
Though now for a little while, he says, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Now we just studied in James where he says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you experience various trials because the the testing of your faith will produce character and character, patience and patience, hope. And this hope won't disappoint. Wait a minute, I just went to Romans 5. But you'll notice that it's a theme in Scripture, that trials and patience and faith develop in us this image of Christ poured through us, that we become more like Jesus, not because of our comfortable days, but because of our uncomfortable days, not because of when things are easy, but when things are very, very hard. And so he says, You've been grieved, if need be, by various trials, verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're kept by God through faith in Him. We're prepared by God through trials. So what is the end goal of our trials? And this is what we need to keep our minds fixed on in trials. God's end goal for us is that our faith would be made genuine. Not hypocritical, not lackadaisical, not double-minded, as James would say. A genuine faith would be produced in us that contributes to God's glory and brings Him praise. God deserves to be praised. And all of us, we just sang... Uh, Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb and praise him in one accord, whether we wanted to in this life or not. And so he deserves to be praised. And so God's goal is to make genuine faith in us. Have you ever noticed that when your life gets really hard, the stuff that doesn't matter takes a back seat and the stuff that really does matter sticks and actually gets instilled even harder? This is not a good example, but I'm going to give it anyway. Just, and this is also, it's going to sound like I'm bragging, and it's going to make us look really good as a family. But that's not my intention. This week, um, some friends of ours uh, went into labor on Tuesday morning, the day after Memorial Day. Now, we're exhausted. It's Tuesday morning, and, and I got to go work. But it's 5.30, and my wife jumps out of bed. Now, at 5.30, my wife may get out of bed, but she does not jump, nor do I. I don't think too many of you do, and if you do, you're a little different. You're a peculiar people. But that said, at 5.30, my wife jumped out of bed, and I said, what's wrong? She said, my phone. I got a text message. Our friends went into labor. And if you know anything about labor, the contractions were about three minutes apart. It's go time. So she's been waiting because her husband has had food poisoning from the day before, and he's been up all night. But in the meantime, all of the, I think there was three or four families of people that they had lined up. You know how you plan. You make a birth plan, and you got your bag ready, and you got families can watch your kids if you got multiple kids. You got all this going on, except it's two weeks early, and it's May. And families are like jet-setting and going all over the place, and they're gone, all four families. So we get the text message, and we're one of the few that are allowed to watch the kids, which is an honor, but it's also tough. So what are we going to do? So a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and then our two kids, and I'm going to work. And so my wife gets up, and she says, um, they need us. And I said, go. I'll, t- I'll bring the kids in. God gave me grace in the moment to not think about just me. And as we went, um, each day was a new day, because we didn't know 
So Kelly ends up staying Tuesday night and then Wednesday night. And then there's people like jumping in in the middle because she had to work on Wednesday and there was some other stuff going on. Now, I like my comfort. I like my plans and I had stuff I wanted to do. But none of it was stuff that really mattered that much and couldn't wait. So in the moment, God gave us grace. And you know what I found out? As my schedule was realigned to what God had for us for the week, I had a lot of joy. And it wasn't because I got to do everything that I wanted to do. It was actually because I didn't have a choice in what I got to do. So I can either be content or I can be angry about it. And I chose to be content and I actually really enjoyed it. I was able to be where I was when I was there. And I found that the things that needed done, we took care of. And the things that really didn't matter that much, I didn't have time for. And because I didn't have time for it, it didn't matter, reality. So for you and for I, God many times is wanting to do that with our schedules. And if we'll embrace it and be content in it, rather than kicking at it and getting angry, like when your kids don't want to get out of bed for school, and you're like, it's time to go to school. And they're like, oh gosh, and they fight you. Instead of being like that towards God, maybe we could just embrace what he has in front of us. How many of you want to make a big impact in this life? I do. You don't have to raise your hands. I do. And many times I want to do the big stuff that makes that happen. But I really believe that if we can just be where we're at and do what God places in front of us by doing many, many tiny little things that seem to not matter, but being faithful to God and praising him in it, we actually make a bigger impact than if we become Billy Graham. Because it's in the little things that God's glorified. And so, uh, trials, he says. Like I said, that wasn't a good example because trials can be diverse. They can vary. For me, that was a trial that God produced patience in me and I enjoyed. But there are sometimes that trials are way harder than that. Um, so trials are needed, he says. We may not think so, but God loves us enough to say, yes, they are. Um, trials are varied. They're various trials. Uh, they can be from one end of the spectrum to the other. Trials are not easy. That would seem like Captain Obvious. But trials are not easy. They are meant to squeeze us. They're meant to conform us. They're meant to turn the heat up past our comfort zone to where the stuff, when they refine silver and gold, they heat it up to a, a critical point, And the stuff that has a lower uh, melting temperature floats to the top and they take a rake and they pull it off the top. And then that gold or that silver becomes more pure because the impurities are are melted away. And God does that in us. But also something to remember is that trials are under God's control. At the very least, he allows it. And at the very most, he sends it because he loves us. So verse 9, excuse me, verse 8 says this, whom having not seen, now let's go back, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revealing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Here's what faith is not. And I've seen it too many times where people call this faith. I put there for It's a really long line, I know. Here's, not, here's what faith is not. If God will do this, give me that, 
fix my situation, get me the job, bring me a spouse, heal me, let me live in sin but still save me, etc., 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 then I'll serve him and trust him. You've made yourself God. You've set the terms. But God does not allow that. Uh, True faith says, but if not. Lord, I love you. I trust you. I'm praying that you would change this situation. But even if you don't, I still trust you. That's the surrender of the Christian life. Whatever God says is best for me is best for me. Agreeing with him. That's our confession. So he says in verse 8, the life of faith looks like this. Love Christ above anything else. Ultimately, love him. Trust Christ. Know that he has your best in mind and rejoice in Christ. Now, I think many of us love him. I think many of us trust him. But how many of us rejoice in him? I have there for you, Jesus Christ is to be the focus of our Christian faith, not who we want him to be, but who he actually is. Read the gospel, read Jesus, look at how he interacted with people. Is that the Jesus that you believe in? And then the power of the gospel is not your faith, but the object of your faith. Uh, Jesus is the object. And true hope that cannot be taken from us is in Jesus only. Everything else can be taken. And so the reality is, in verse 9 through 12, our salvation is something to be rejoiced in. Our salvation is something that for centuries people have been looking into, the Jewish faithful that were searching the scriptures. In verse 9, he goes on to say, um, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When was the last time you marveled at your salvation? what it took for God to save you, where you were before you were saved, what God did in order to save you, but also just in the fact that he wanted to. God had a plan from before the foundation of the earth to save rebellious people from their sin against him. And the reality is, the prophets that served God, he used them to proclaim this salvation before it ever came to fruition and what it says in this passage we're getting ready to, to read is that even the angels of God who are in the presence of God look at our salvation and they marvel. They look at it and they go, "How we didn't get that opportunity and we serve in the presence of God. Think about it. A third of the angels were drew down from heaven by Satan and they don't get a second chance. God revealed himself to Adam and Eve Adam and Eve listened to Satan instead of God. They partook of the tree of good and evil. And because of that, death has reigned ever since. And God says, I'm going to fix death. I'm going to defeat death for you. And then you'll have the opportunity to receive this this salvation from death. And so the prophets, verse 9, he goes on to say, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Those prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, 
They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This salvation was inquired of to God by the prophets, and it was searched carefully for the answers. They searched the Old Testament scriptures like gangbusters, looking for what way that God was going to save them and when it would take place. When will these things be? To the point that even Peter, James, and John, who were Jewish believers at the time, were asking Jesus, well, when is this going to happen? When he gave them the end of all things, and he gave them the Olivet Discourse about how all things would come to a fruition at the end of times, Peter, James, and John, and all the other apostles were like, when's it going to happen? That's been their question for ages. So at the time that the prophets were inquiring of it, they didn't get an answer. They just had to trust. But then it was predicted by the Spirit, but didn't, they didn't understand how or when it would happen. And it was revealed to them that suffering would be involved, but many of them looked at it and they said, well, su- suffering's going to happen, but it's not going to happen to the Messiah. He's going to come and deliver us because we're suffering. They didn't understand that part, so they just kicked it aside. But the reality is salvation came through suffering. Salvation came through Jesus laying down his life. But even though they didn't quite understand it, they hoped in the salvation, the Messiah that would come, but they had to wait. And the angels are blown away at our salvation. So the question comes, is even when things don't pan out the way that we think that they should, are we making it a habit to enjoy Jesus Christ and our relationship with him now when things aren't good, when the promises aren't all fulfilled, when our circumstances aren't what we desire them to be? Are you enjoying Jesus, not for what he can give you, but for what he's already done? When was the last time you just rejoiced in him? Not in what he has to offer you, not in what he's promised you, not in the things that he's already given you, but just in him. He is worthy of being rejoiced in. Do you realize how great a gift we've been given? Our salvation is not just practical salvation. It's a person who saved us so he can have relationship with us. And so often we're content with just being saved, but ignoring the relationship portion. We rejoice when God answers prayer, don't we? We rejoice when he heals us. We rejoice when he provides practically and financially. We do at our house. We thank you, Lord. Just in the simple things. I'm thankful that my plumbing's working right now. Just, you know, I'm, I'm still just reeling in the fact that I finally fixed it the third try. But when was the last time you simply looked at Jesus himself for all that he is and simply just truly rejoiced in his love for you? In the moment when you doubt God's love because of circumstances, I want to instruct you and hopefully encourage you. Look at Jesus for all that he is, all that he's already done for you, and all that he's promised to finish, and just be thankful for him. So as we get ready to take communion, communion is just that. It's communing with God, having a meal that he told us to practice regularly, to remember what he has done, to look at what he is doing, and to look forward to past all of this stuff. The prophets in the Old Testament, you know what they did? 
They prophesied of these things, and many times you read in one verse a promise of what the Messiah would do the first coming, and then a promise of what he'd fulfill in the second coming, but they didn't see the valley in between, which was the opportunity for Gentiles to be saved, the church age that we're currently in. They saw his first coming, they saw the millennial kingdom, and and that's all that they saw, but they didn't see in between the suffering, the first coming, and, and Jesus building this church, and all of us having the opportunity to be born again, but to live by faith through the valley of the shadow of death. Learning to fear no evil, because he is with me, he comforts me, he steadies me, he feeds me, he provides for me all the way through to the promise, the fulfillment of what will happen in the end times. And I believe that he's coming soon. I believe that it's even more imminent than it was 2,000 years ago, not just because time's passing, but because if you look at the signs of the times, the things that are going on right now, they're being fulfilled. We're getting ready to go to Israel in like two or three weeks, and it's one of the most fruitful nations right now. And there are people that don't even know why Jewish descendants of Abraham that are flocking back to the land. And it was prophesied in the book of Ezekiel that in the last days there would be this ingathering and he would gather the people that we're talking about that are scattered among the land would be gathered back to the land and ultimately Jesus will come back. And there's all kinds of other stuff that's going to happen. So in the meantime, trusting him, is what we need to learn to do, knowing that these trials that we're experiencing, the trials that they were experiencing, were producing an ingenuine faith. So this meal that we're going to take is remembering